Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Ireland's fiction laureate Anne Enright writes unsentimentally on the family unit and the tidal pull it exerts. Her latest book, The Green Road, is an exploration of a clan reunion during which the complicated matriarch takes to her bed. The horizontal solution, comments her son. Enright, writes James Wood in The New Yorker, is an unusual talent. Wood says she is a rich, lyrical prose writer who cascades among novelties. Again and again, she finds the unexpected adjective, the just noun. But she is, at the same time, a brisk and satirical aphorist who often conceals more than she displays. Enright speaks with Kate de Goldie in a session supported by Culture Island. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everyone. I'm Kate de Goldie. I'm here with Anne Enright, who I'll introduce properly in a minute. Um, can I just do a little bit of housekeeping? Can you please um, check your phones are on silent? And if you're going to share the wonder of the session on social media, can you just please be careful about your texting and tweeting? We would like to acknowledge the support of Culture Island for the visit of Anne. It's really a great privilege to be here with Anne and to introduce her and be allowed to have a public discussion with her. I've been immersed in her books for the last two months and overwhelmed by her bracing lack of sentimentality, but the page-turning way one reads nevertheless. I thought there could be sort of an epigraph hanging over the session. Anne's written novels, short stories, plays at all, Anne? I did. I, play. I did. <laughs> um, and pieces for um, newspapers and periodicals. And of course, she won the Booker Prize for her wonderful novel, The Gathering. Since then, two most recent novels are The Forgotten Walls, I think, and The Green Road. So there's heaps to talk about. And I thought the epigraph for this session could be, as one of the characters says in um, The Green Road, I'm sorry, I can't invite you for dinner. I'm Irish and my family is mad. <laughs> but as with everything Anne writes or has her characters say, it's loaded and ambiguous as a statement because one of her jobs or delights has been to deconstruct a lot of myths about the Irish. So please welcome Anne. Thank you. Thank you. Just to say, um, we will talk. Um, Anne will mostly talk, I'll ask her questions. And of course, there will be time for questions from all of you, 10 to 15 minutes near the end. So Anne, I thought I'd like to start with The Green Road and with luck range over some of the other novels as well because your themes are recurring and changing through each publication. But I want to ask you first and foremost about The Green Road, about Rosaline, who is one of many mothers, or people about to be mothers, um, or people whose mothers have gone throughout your work, my dark Rosaline, um, and she's the most maddening but strangely um, captivating figure who haunts the novel, even though she's actually off the page quite a lot of the time. Um, 
Can you just talk about your project, if you like, in terms of motherhood throughout your work? Well, yeah, I, I, there's lots of, um, I was gonna say mammies. Um, there are, Rosaline isn't a mammy, she doesn't like being called mammy, she thinks it's a bit lower class. Um, she would prefer to be called Rosaline. Um, but there are, you know, mamas, mammies, mothers in all of these books. Um, it's slightly deliberate, I suppose, <laughs> in that the mother was, it's so important in the Irish tradition, she didn't exist really. I think there's a couple of lines in Joyce, and McGahern's mother died when he was eight, and so she's the absence in his books, and the books are mostly about a father figure. Um, and uh, so I wanted to address that in some way. I'm a mother myself, so that's kind of interesting. I kind of feel the, the idea of mother as some archetype that we have in our infant brains as some source of endless goodness and apple pie and comfort and solace and warmth, all of those things, we spent our lives shaping something else from that, um, uh, missing it or, or, or revisiting it in one way or the other. And my, my own theory is that mothers are just human beings who, 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 that children came out of. So, in the way that when you go to plays, it can be annoying that the women on stage are one thing or another, and they're recognizable as story types, but they're not like the girls you went to school with. Uh, I wanted to do things with the girls you went to school with, you know, that they're recognizable as people you know who are like yourself or people you'd meet in the street who happen to just have children. That said, that, you know, that's a lie because, of course, Rosaline is a mythopoetic figure as well as all, as well as all of that. And she's infuriating and she's endlessly disappointed with her children for, for reasons she can't quite name. <laughs> and they're, they're always leaving her. And, um, and, and, the, and she's so cross at them leaving her, she decides to sell the house and give them money. That'll show them. <laughs> and, and they do feel that disappointment quite keenly, and they feel that their lives outside of her domestic circle are of no interest to her. And we all leave our families all the time. We, we spend our lives leaving our mothers. We, our children spend their lives leaving us. It's just true, isn't it? It's not really, I don't know, is it sad or not? But anyway, it's something. So the, the, the ideas of leaving and return, you know, fed into ideas of Irish emigration and return home and, and home, um, and that melancholy feeling of home that is the west of Ireland, that lost place, that lost beauty. Um, so it all became of a piece. There's also a tradition just to, you know, for playfulness sake, there's a tradition of Ireland as a woman, right. Ireland as a mother. Um, Ireland as an abandoned figure in the poetry that I learned at mm. school. So you, you said early, early in that, um, that the mother was absent in, in the tradition within Irish literature, buried. So it's a kind of an excavation and putting on, yes. on the stage, isn't it? Uh, or an excavation of absences. Right. Or an, an exploration of why that absence should be, should be unsayable. Mm. Mm. Um, She's the sort of orienting figure in the book. The kids are always going away, and they're going away to remote places, but also um, places, or well, the two men, the one place that represents a kind of weird away connection with Ireland. I mean, the diaspora is all over the world, but America represents something else. 
And yeah. it's significant that Dan goes there. Can, can you talk about... Yeah, well, I, I could talk about Emmett first because I yes. started with Emmett when I was writing the book and Emmett is a humanitarian, he's an aid worker. He went all the places that people normally don't go and I was interested in these, these stranger tracks that Irish people make across the world, apart from New York and Boston and London. Um, I was interested in the Irish missionary tradition and, um, and how those priests and nuns went everywhere. I met an Argentinian once who said he'd been taught by Irish nuns, and I, and I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, can't you tell? <laughs> so for good or for ill, uh, the Irish went everywhere in a, in, in a reforming sort of way, um, and it was an interesting adjunct to colonialism. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, that was all interesting to me. I was writing the book in a little house in County Clare near the Green Road, which is the green road of the title, and the man who owned the house was in Africa building factories, he was a builder. And I was writing about Emmett, who's an aid worker in Africa, and outside was County Clare with the stone walls and the cows and the cliffs of mower and the sea and all the rest of it. And when Emmett thought of home, he thought of this landscape, and I was thinking, no, I can't do this, I can't do bog. I'm not, not going to do bog. And of course, <laughs> I couldn't avoid bog. I took the bog for my own. Um, so, uh, and that was why Emmett went off-piste, as it were. Dan went a more usual journey and, and continued to take more usual journeys through those airports that people, middle-class people know. Mm. Um, and he went to New York. Now, the shift between the first section and the second uh, section of the book is very vertiginous. It's like we're in doughty old County Clare, things aren't brilliant, but we know that, we know the rain, we know the crying mother, we know lots about this place. Um, and then suddenly I wanted to show how weird it is to get what you wanted. Like Dan said, Dan has this feeling, as we all have, that our, li our real lives are gonna happen elsewhere. That if we get out of here, then we can start living properly. And so, um, but we can, and we have this amazing future as teenagers. We don't know what it is, but it's just gonna be amazing. And it's going to be not here. <laughs> so Dan goes off for his and, and finds a world that he could never have anticipated, that is much stranger than he, and, and sadder and, and more challenging than he could have expected. And he doesn't quite meet the challenge. Um, There's this curious emptiness in Dan. There's a bit of an emptiness in both those boys, mm. yeah, a bit of a chill. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the really startling thing for me in, in terms of the kids is that the, the admission in different ways from each of them that they don't really know each other. That, that they can sort of be physically with each other, but it's all the time there's a kind of strangeness with them or an irritation between them. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 there's a good reason families are irritated with each mm. other. Um, I, to go right back to Freud, if you, if, if you want, and the incest taboo, there's a very good reason that we don't love our families too much. Mm. Um, and yet we love them. Uh, it's, I'm very interested in the difference between love we don't choose, what might be called genetic or biological love. You don't choose to love your parents, you, 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 you don't get the choice. And romantic or sexual love, and, and how all that, those two, that, that difference. So, uh, but Emmett and Dan don't love each other. Um, I don't think this is typical of all families. No. But one of the saddest moments in the book is when Dan looks at Emmett and is just completely 
mm. indifferent, annoyed. Mm. Dan has a whole different series of values, most of them aesthetic. He likes things to be beautiful, as Rosaline, his mother, does. Dan is badly dressed and, you know... Emmett. Emmett is badly <laughs> dressed um, and has a different, mm. a whole different world in his head. And Dan feels a bit challenged by that, I'm sure. Anyway, he, he decides he just doesn't like Emmett. But that rivalry between brothers, mm. it's, not, it's not always the case. Um, the other great thing, the, you have the first part of the book, and within that part, Dan has broken the news that he's beginning, going to become a priest. And Rosalind does what she does all the time, which is take herself off dramatically to recover from this trauma imposed by her child possibly her most loved child. And then, the next time we see Dan, he's in New York and he's slowly coming out, or, or even quite quickly coming out. Mm. We never hear about him being in the priesthood, and that seems extremely deliberate on your part, absenting that whole part of Irish literature and Irish life from the novel. You mean his choice not to become a priest? Yeah, that, yeah. But, but we don't ever, we never see him in the no. seminary. Yep. No, we have to fill in the gaps ourselves, and we sort of know all that, don't we? Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and that is something you're very deliberately doing throughout your work, is stepping away from those old subjects that were arguably the territory of masculinist Irish literature. Yeah, the religious crisis. Yeah, yeah. Is it boring to talk about it? Hmm? Is it boring to talk about that? No, I was just thinking of Bernard McLaverty, who's a wonderful Irish writer who does write about religious crisis, as Brian Moore did in mm. uh, books like The Black Robe. Um, and it is interesting to see these characters wrestle with angels, you know, and we're not, if you don't believe in the angel, you're not all that interested in the wrestling. But you've got an... <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so it just... Who's that? Is that you? It's your microphone, I think, um, as opposed to you. Uh, but yes, no, you don't see Dan's theological difficulties. I, I don't think because he, he, the priesthood thing is a bit of a lifestyle cho choice. You feel, as Rosaline probably feels somewhere, that he has intimations of his gaydom that is ahead. Of, uh, ahead. But there's no way for him to articulate it to himself. There's no language available for him to speak it. Um, there's no... There's no, uh, although there was a long section which I took out from the Christmas dinner in the book where, and I, I've heard Irish men say this, where he goes through all the neighbors that he's had. <laughs> in small town Ireland, and it was just structurally a bit too much. <laughs> you know, including his sister's husband's brother, you know, encounters. So he would have had encounters, but he wouldn't have known how to um, articulate them, describe them to himself. And, and he, he, Dan doesn't just leave his mother or Ireland, he leaves the book for about 60 pages. Um, and, and that was because he was a character so lacking in self-knowledge that, that going inside his head would be a different style of book. It would be a book about denial. And I, I just needed to see him from the outside for that, for that section there in you, New York. You actually do have an angel in one of your novels. I do? Yeah, so clearly yeah. you were playing with that. And there's well. a bit of wrestling. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's no sex. You don't, that doesn't happen with angels. I but, think that was the problem in the book. <laughs>
It was a very experimental book in it was, many yeah. respects. And I'm not sure whether it was that book or one later, or maybe the stories that were described by Com Toybean as post-feminist and post-nationalist. Can you talk about feminism in regard to your work? Your column was being very uh, playful and optimistic in describing me as post-feminist because there's a whole business of feminism that didn't happen in Ireland because, mm. um, uh, and, you know, the 70s, we sort of missed the 70s. We had no Gloria Steinem or uh, the, the wrangle in Ireland has been endlessly over reproductive uh, matters. Um, so in the 80s, there were, you know, it was contraception came in. Uh, in my early 20s, we all went out and went hurrah. <laughs> I, but I grew up in a country that, you know, didn't have contraception. It's, it's kind of weird. unthinkable for us, I think. Very hard to get back into that mindset, for, even for me now. Um, that the expectation was that you would not have sex without being married, and, 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 and it just wasn't working. I mean, it just wasn't how things were. So that there was this big, slightly brittle, slightly hysterical fight going on, saying this is the way things should be, and nobody was, do nobody was living like that in Dublin under the age of 30. So it just didn't have any traction. So that was possibly why it got so bitter as a, as a discussion. But after that, we also had a, a divorce referendum, but an a, a abortion referendum and a divorce referendum. So there was a kind of sexual civil war that went on in the 80s. So things about money, um, equality of pay, but also about space, public space, equality of speech, the right to be or not the right to be, the inability that Irish women, uh, that Irish men had to hear what women had to say, the kind of public deafness to female speech. Um, none of those issues were properly addressed mm. because, and we're still fighting about abortion. So I don't know what Colm was saying there about my post-feminism. I must go back and tell him. <laughs> <laughs> Our post-modernist either. Oh, yeah, yeah post-feminist, perhaps post-polemical. I don't, in my fictions, put my political views out on a stall. I think if your book is too about-y, too polemical, too ideologically driven, then it's not mm. useful. It just dies on the page. Nevertheless, you do say really interesting things about the subject matter that you're interested in. One that caught me in relation to women was, you didn't want to write about the child when you're writing about, when you're writing any of the books so much as the child that's become a woman, put the women on the page in, yeah. in all their glory. Yeah. And well, yeah, I suppose if you, any religious tradition does two things to women, it glorifies them and degrades them. Um, so what was, the, what was the child in all that? Did, did the child stand in for something within that tradition? Which child are you talking about? Any child, the child in fiction. Oh, oh. You uh, said it. <laughs> did I? Yes. What did I say again? Um, I wonder, the did tendency I mean when that? writing about memory and history and culture is to, I, I, this is how I understand yes. it, is to load the child as the figure who carries it all, embodies it. Yeah. But you, you go straight to adulthood. 
Well, I mean, children are fascinating in fiction. They, they, they have little moral agency, and they, they also have a slight uncanny sense. And we love them. Some weird thing about children. I know people hate them on planes, you know. <laughs> but even the ones on the planes you can love. They, 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 they're like puppies. I mean, some people don't like dogs. But you know what I mean? They, 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 they bring out all our tenderness and all our difficulties, I think. Mm. Um, so I do like putting children in books. And since I had children myself and met more children and talked to more children and enjoyed you know, having a go with them and seeing the different personalities, I do like putting children with different personalities in books. Can I read the, just the opening line to The Forgotten Waltz? If it hadn't been for the child, then none of this might have happened. But the fact that a child was involved made everything that much harder to forgive. It is so interesting how that child is the kind of orienting presence all the way through the book. Yeah, I mean, the big discovery, or the thing that we're always trying to forget in modern culture is that sex produces children. <laughs> and and it, it, if you read a newspaper, you would never think that. <laughs> you would think that sex produces bikinis, you know? But, but actually, under, there is a lot of, I was going to say under that kind of pornographic anxiety, there is the fact that sex produces children, which is a thing that our infantile, our child brains find difficult to comprehend. So we're kind of chasing away from that a lot, mm. one way or the other, particularly um, it isn't really part of male discourse. Um, in, in, in literature, that, that, that sex also does that amazing thing, or that's a cool trick, or sometimes doesn't produce children problematically. And that whole business mm -hmm. um, can abs be absent from, from literature. I think the 19th century did families very easily and very well, and people like Dickens and Tolstoy had mothers, had children, had the whole range. And then something much more individualistic happened in the 20th century we were looking at narrators who were existentially challenged, they were alone. Um, and it might, I mean, the whole, a whole tranche of books who might, might be called, who is the man, you know? Um, so putting family back in, you risk being described as a domestic writer and all kinds of code words for female and not very important. Um, as though, you know, this is somehow a reduction in status. But I just think that all of that is bullshit, really. Yeah, you know, I think, that <laughs> you know, that the, these are the interesting things. This is how we live. This is how we grow. And, you know, it happened to all of us. We all were born out of women and grew up in families. Mm. Can I, we talk a little bit about The Forgotten Waltz? Because... I think it's the most interesting book I've ever read about an affair, because it's hard to be interesting about it because it's so hung around with cliché. Huh. But you're, you're giving it to us, but kind of nudging it the whole time you're writing about it. And one of the things that the characters do all the time, or, or our narrator, Gina, Gina, she says all the time, we were so in love. We were so in love, it's like an anthem. Um, and every time you read it, you know she's not really meaning that. It's something she's persuading she's in herself. Love. Well, she's infatuated, and she's and it's a massively sort of egotistical kind of mm. place to be. And then, you know, 
the realization it might not be mutual. That's kind of, you know, wow. I remember that when you were a teenager and you were in love. So things had to be in a certain, they had to, there was an imperative there that wasn't always matched by the reality. So yeah, Gina is romantically in love. And I wanted to write about that style of desiring um, for fun, really. Some, somebody gave out to me a very kind of right on critic uh, person who shall not be named said there were more penises in the gathering than in a medical textbook. <laughs> I don't think they were. I, I, I really don't think that. Maybe she imagined them. Maybe she saw them there. Anyway, so, <laughs> so I, I, I challenged myself, but it, it really, I found it very interesting. I thought, why, why would she object? I mean, what's wrong with that? And not in a silly way, but what is wrong with that? Um, and I realized that women do, don't talk like that, perhaps even to themselves. So I wanted to write a book that reflected how a woman like Gina would talk about you know, they're at it like knives, but she, there's no descriptions of anatomy or you, you wouldn't know what Sean, the, the guy, looks like. Um, and although it's a predominantly, and for him perhaps, an exclusively sexual affair, she sees it as everything else. Mm. And that, so n n no, no penises. Mm. Um, <laughs> in the book... Everything but. In the book, it feels partly like the child is on one side of Gina, I don't know whether she's a conscience or just something that troubles Gina. And then there's her mother, who she loves. She's lovely, that mother. Yeah, she's And a... um, I'm really trying hard not to move my head. And Gina, um, so there, they, there she is. They sort of bookend her. Yeah. What, what, what did you intend with that? Am I reading it right? There's also the sister. Yes, yes, yes. So she's triangulated. Yeah, I mean, in the deep history of the book, I mean, there's always a big lump of book that falls off the book. It's like one of those moonshots, you know. Sorry, this is a bit obscure, but I do think of it in terms of the moonshots, <laughs> where the thing that gets the book up into the outer atmosphere drops off then, that kind of engine. But part of her engine is her sister. She has a jealousy with her sister. She's a sibling rivalry, all to do with the da. And that's not really, that's just barely suggested in the book. Um, and she wants to elbow other women out of the way. And I do know of affairs in which this has been true, that, that, that affair depended on there being a wife or a certain style of woman who isn't interested if there isn't a wife and that she wants to get the wife out of the way. But in order to get the wife out of the way, the, the wife has to be there all the time. Um, so that's Gina. She's a lovely person. Actually, I mean, I do feel that Evie, who's Sean's daughter, and she doesn't comprehend or understand the love he has for, for the daughter. It seems also in her way. Um, and I, um, my regret about that book is that it is a little bit too moral, that the child is involved, and therefore it matters. And it is a little bit too hard on Gina, actually. I read that book and rang my sister and said, so weird um, that... I feel like you were writing about our time here in the, in the 1980s. It was utterly recognisable to me, the way the women behaved and the kind of relationships they had. And I mean, I, I don't know what to conclude from that, but hmm. um, it, it felt incredibly lived and real. It was, in an about sort of way, also about the boom in property in Ireland. So the denial of the boom and the denial of affair, an affair seemed to me to match very well 
because we all knew the boom was going to end, but it was a lot of fun. And you couldn't, <laughs> you know, and we were doing it anyway. And it had a kind of illicitness about it, the boom, didn't it? It did have an illicitness about it, mm. actually. The obscene amount of money you can get from selling your house. Yeah, that, that was kind of dirty, yeah. And presumably, um, there's a sort of analogue of self-involvement self between the boom and a love affair as well. Both yeah. about consumption yes. in some unthinking way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of consumption, would you um, <laughs> would you read? We're going to talk about food. Please. Um, I asked Anne if she would read. Uh, I'm getting old to see food. A magnificent passage about food. Yep, it's in the Green Road. Yeah, uh, this is a, a piece that Kate liked from the book, and it is Constance. It's the Constance's daughter who stays at home, minding Rosalind, minding everyone. And I do know a family where this is true. The person who stayed behind mind, the mother was on her deathbed and, and was being endlessly minded by this woman. Uh, but, the, the, but she didn't want that person. She wanted the one who wasn't there. So she kept on saying, you know, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Who are you? Where's Jim? Because Jim was nowhere. Anyway, that's Constance. She's the one who minds everyone. And when they all come back to... Uh, for. Christmas in 2005. Constance, it's on her to do the Christmas shop. And this is the middle of the boom, isn't it? 2005. This is 2005. Uh, the next morning she went early into Ennis. It was 10 a.m. on Christmas Eve and the supermarket was like the apocalypse. People grabbing without looking and things falling in the aisles. But there was no good time to do this. You just had to get through it. Constance pushed her trolley to the vegetable section, celery, carrots, parsnips for Desi, who liked them, sage for the stuffing, an experimental bag of chestnuts, vacuum-packed. Constance bought a case of Prosecco on special offer to wrap and leave on various doorsteps and threw in eight frozen pizzas in case the kids rolled up with friends, frozen berries, different ice cream. She got wine, cherry, whiskey, fresh nuts, salted nuts, crisps, bags and bags of apples, two mangoes, a melon, dark cherries for the fruit salad, root ginger, fresh mint, a wooden crate of satsumas, the fruit cold and promising sweet, each one with its own sprig of green, dark leaves. She got wrapping paper, of course, red paper, napkins, sellotape, and more out of habit now that children were grown, packs and packs of batteries, double A's, triple A's, a few C's. She took five squat candles in cream-colored beeswax to fill the cracked hearth in the good room at Ardeven, where no fire was lit these ten years past, and two long rolls of simple red baubles to fill the gaps on her mother's tree. She went back for more sausages then because she'd forgotten about breakfast. Tomatoes, bacon, eggs. She went back to the dairy section for more cheese, back to the fruit aisle for seedless grapes, back to the biscuit aisle for water biscuits. She searched high and low for a string to keep the cloth on the pudding, stopped at the delicatessen counter for pesto, chicken liver pate, tubs of olives. She got some ready-cooked drum drumsticks just to keep people going. At every corner she met a neighbour, an old friend, they rolled their eyes and threw Christmas greetings, and no one thought her rude for not stopping to converse. She smiled at a baby in the queue for the till. I know, she said. Yes, I know. <laughs> the baby considered her fully. The baby gave her a look that was complete. Yes, she said again. I got the curl of a sweet th 
thoughtful smile. All this kept Constance occupied until the time came to unload the contents of her trolley onto the conveyor. The baby held itself so proudly erect. The young mother underneath it looked like a prop. She looked like some kind of clapped out baby stand. You're doing great, Constance told her. You're doing a great job. The bill came to 410 euros. A new record? She thought she should keep the receipt for posterity. Desi would be almost proud. Constance pushed her trolley onto the walkway and the wheels locked cleverly onto the metal beneath them and she was happy, happy, happy as she sank towards the car park. She thanked God from the burning, rising depth of herself for this unexpected life. A man who loved her, two sons taller than their father and a daughter who kissed her still when there was no one there to see. She couldn't believe that this was the way things had turned out. Her feet were swollen already. She could feel them throb hot in the wrong shoes. Constance bumped the trolley off the walkway, set her trotters thumping across the concrete of the car park. It was half past 11 on Christmas Eve. In the pocket of her coat, her phone started to ring, and by the telepathy of the timing, Constance knew it was her mother. What is it, darling, she said remembering as she did so that she had forgotten the Brussels sprouts. <laughs> He's still asleep, said Rosaline. For a moment, Constance thought she was talking about her father, a man who was not asleep, but dead. Well, don't wake him, she said. Dan, of course she meant Dan, who was jet-lagged. Should I? Or, yeah, maybe do, get him straightened out. There was a pause from Rosaline. Straightened out. You think? Have you got everything, said Constance. I don't know, said her mother. Don't worry. It's a lot of work, Rosaline said, with a real despair in her voice. You'd think she had just spent an hour in the insanity of the supermarket, not Constance. But I suppose it's worth it to have you all here. I suppose. I'll be sorry to see it go. She was talking about the house again. Any time she felt needy now, or lost or uncertain, she talked about the house. Right, said Constance. Listen, Mammy. Mammy, said Rosaline. Listen. Oh, don't bother, I'll let you go. And she was gone. It was Rosaline, of course, who wanted Brussels sprouts. No one else ate them. Constance stood for a moment blank behind the crammed boot of the Lexus. You can't have Christmas without Brussels sprouts. Sometimes even Rosaline left them on her plate, something to do with cruciferous vegetables or nightshades because even vegetables were a poison to her when the wind was from the northeast. Oh, what the hell, said Constance. She slammed the boot shut and turned her sore feet back to the walkway and to the horrors of the vegetable section. Then over to the spices to get nutmeg, which was the way Rosaline liked her Brussels with unsalted butter. And it was a good thing she went pack up because she had no cranberry sauce either. Unbelievably, no brandy for the brandy butter, no honey to glaze the ham. It was as though she had thrown the entire shop into the trolley and bought nothing. She would no big foil for the turkey. Constance grabbed some potato salad, coleslaw, smoked salmon, mayonnaise, more tomatoes, liter bottles of fizzy drinks for the kids, kitchen roll, cling film, extra toilet paper, extra bin bags. She didn't even look at the bill. After another 15 minutes in the queue behind some woman who had forgotten flowers, uh, as she announced, and abandoned the queue to get them, after which Constance did exactly the same thing. 
fetching two bouquets of strong pink lilies because they had no white left. She was on the road home before she remembered potatoes. <laughs> Thought about pulling over to the side of the road and digging some out of a field. Imagined herself with her hands in the earth, scrabbling around for a few withered spuds, lifting her head to howl. Back in Okavana, she unpacked and sorted the stuff that would go over to Ardeven for the Christmas dinner, and she repacked that. Then she went to Rory's room, where the child was sleeping off a hangover. Constance took off her shoes and climbed up on the bed behind him. Oh, fuck, he said. Your own fault, said his mother, as she spooned into him with the duvet between them and the wall at her back. Ah, ma, he said, and flapped a big hand over his shoulder to find a bit of her, which happened to be the top of her head. But Rory was always easy to hold, easy to carry, and easy to kiss. And there, in the smell of last night's beer and of his rude good health, fretful, lumpy Constance McGrath fell asleep. Thank you. <laughs> I, I read that with the same column to me in Listo, and he said afterwards, he said, you know, I think sometimes it helps if you write a list. <laughs> I just love the counterpointing of Brussels sprouts and Rosaline, um, because here, Brussels sprouts aren't quite so loved as, yes. they might, as they might be. Well, nobody eats them. Mm. But they're still necessary. <laughs> no, but you have to have them, yeah. Um, Clearly. And that's hitting um, consumption head on. In the Eliza Lynch book, yeah. um, you're also writing about contemporary Ireland, but you chose to do it in that way, in an, writing about that. I'm glad you spotted that, because nobody in Ireland did. It was set in 1854. And Eliza Lynch, who is a mistress of, uh, or consort of a real Latin American dictator called Francisco Solano Lopez, escapes famine Ireland. And there is quite a, a vivid image of the famine victims on the quayside in, in Cove. And, 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 uh, and lives a life of Victorian colonial consumption. And although she was married to a tyrant, her talent and I should be careful as I say this, a bit like Assad's wife in Syria, was for shopping and shipping and getting the best into Paraguay, which was, and so there was this need and greed in, in, in her. Um, and if the theme of the book was, was not greed, it was hunger, I knew it was hunger. Um, and it was written during, during the boom. But this, I hope, Constance, I hope you get the pleasure of it. You know, the joy and the, the cherries and the mangoes. You know, my father never ate a mango and I, I brought a mango to the house late in his life and I thought this was going to be amazing, but he just ate it. And <laughs> I thought, imagine never having tasted mango, but he liked it, yeah, it's grand, lovely. He had, no, he had no great yearning for mangoes, but uh, you know, I think I do. Constance is a really interesting figure because there she is representing for us consumption at its craziest, but also at its most pleasurable. Yeah. Because who hasn't done that in the supermarket? And nurturing. And nurturer. She, she's got a lovely relationship with her husband. 
um, who's a property developer, so sort of belongs to a part of Ireland we might feel chary about. Yeah. But she's sad as well, and in, in a sense separate. Well, she's a a sad fat. about her mother. Everyone is interested how fat is Constance. Mm. I, I, I couldn't put a weight on her. She's just as fat as she would be. She isn't very fat. Dan thinks she's incredibly fat. Yeah. Anyway. So, but that's, that's <laughs> I mean, that business about her fat and, and Dan's beauty mm. is, um, it's as much about Dan as it yes, is about it her, is, isn't yeah, it? Yes, it is, yeah, yeah. yeah clearly. Um, I just want to go sideways a bit to the gathering and a, a big theme in all the books is witnessing, remembering, and um, relating. And Veronica says at the beginning of the book that she is witnessing to something that probably happened. There's an, an absolute ambiguity about the act that it's at, that's at the center of the book. Can you just talk about that? I mean, that's deliberate, isn't it? That it's not... If you're going remember. to put women at the center of your books, right? For, for the most part, they're not very evil, or they're not very good, you know, super extra, uh, you know, saintly, virginal good, you know, you, you, you want them to be somehow normal. But is this a wrong thing to say? I don't know. A lot of the bad things that happen in the world aren't done by women. <laughs> so, so if you've got a female character, the challenge Yes, I should really take up the challenge of Gina. I did a little of when she does wrong things. But sometimes it's what do you do when wrong things happen? How do you absorb, accommodate um, when it's not your... You know. Anyway, Veronica is named after the character who isn't in the Bible but was in early Christian um, writings who... who, who um, in fact, we know that the name is one of those few Latin and Greek combinations, so Vera icon, true image. Um, so she was a makey-uppy, the early Catholic father's makey-uppy saint, and she wiped the face of Jesus on the road to Calvary, and she offered that comfort, and the image was left on the cloth. By, 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 that's the story. So that was why she was named uh, Veronica in the gathering, because she doesn't do it very well. <laughs> and in fact, you know, she's so deep in it, she doesn't, Constance would, would be much better able to console, but Veronica isn't a consoling presence. She's bearing witness to something and it sort of tears her open. Um, and, uh, and she can't figure out the fairness or otherwise of her, her brother's death. There's no fairness in death, I mean, of her brother's life, of her brother coming into the world. Um, and by extension, her own. So it is a kind of existential crisis she has. There's, a, um, there's almost kind of a howl in the middle of the book when Veronica considers her mother, who's the most curious absence in a way, and it's a, it seemed to me to be a howl about women's bodies being so um, kind of owned and just constantly having to pour forth the children. So she's saying about her family, they were just, why did you have all these babies? And yet she's acknowledging throughout the book that she cares about her family too and they want to all gather Yeah, I mean, to they seem together. to, I mean, there were 12 children in that family and they seem to come, and I've had these conversations later at night with people who were from uh, really large families 
they said, what were they thinking? Now, it's an extension of that primal, uh, I, I, the anxiety about the primal scene, you know, that I, I talked a little bit about earlier. How parents do, what are they doing? You know, hmm, uh, is, hmm, uh, you know, but you multiply that by 21, <laughs> and it becomes much more social. You say, what were they thinking? What went on in there? Uh, why did they not stop? Who, whose fault was it? What was going on? And there were some families, I know uh, quite a, a well-off family where there were 11 children, and they clearly loved having children. And so it can be a choice, but it more often was not a choice. And, and um, so that mother is pummeled by childbirth, not by childrearing. She's just, I mean, I, I had my children sort of in my late 30s, and it was a really, it was an extreme gig, you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe if I was 19, you know, I'd go dancing, but it wasn't, uh, you know, the whole business of it and, and, and giving birth in Irish hospitals in the 60s and 70s, it's unthinkable, you know, <laughs> you know, um, and so she's knocked, it's, it's knocked the stuffing out of her, literally, and so that's where her absence lies. I'm glad you like the mother in um, The Forgotten Wall. She's the kind of mother as pal. She's the one who'd go into the dressing room and say, no, don't wear cream. Uh, yeah. um, can you, um, I'm going to ask a question, questions from the audience after this, but um, I'd just like to ask you, at some point, I can't remember where I read the quote, you talk about the game of withholding in Irish life. Do you remember saying that? I'm quite interested in books that withhold, but in Irish life, mm. of, of, of what, withholding of what? I think sex, um, sexual orientation, but also um, something to do with religion as well. Yeah, withholding. I probably meant withholding of, of flattery and <laughs> all the rest of it. Irish writers um, uh, historically just ran out of the place um, to be liked elsewhere. There's a very ambivalent relationship with any culture and it, between any culture and its writers. Um, I had a brilliant thing to say there. It was utterly amazing, and now it's gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, uh, oh, yeah. I was trying to explain how important, uh, I was up in Christchurch, I was trying to explain how important I, um, American writers were to me as, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14, and it was their use of the word I. Uh, Sylvia Plath, for example, or, you know, going back to Walt, I was thinking about it subsequently, Walt Whitman, I sing the body electric. You couldn't get, I mean, Yeats used I sparingly, and he was just about allowed, but it was not a word that was encouraged in my childhood, nor was it a book, a word that I read much in, uh, in fiction. Because if you said I too much, the response would be, oh, you, you, you. Like, like what, what's, what have you got to do with anything? So there was this sense of us, you could write about us, or you could write in the third person, and it would be very distant, but nobody's interested in, uh, in you going on about things. And that was, for both male and female writers, it wasn't, but I think more, probably, you know, in any, in any more poorer culture, that, that women are less able to be egotistical, one way or the other. And uh, so, uh, so that withholding, 
that's the obverse, really, of the withholding. The being in the largest sense of yourself was never encouraged. You were going to fit in in some way to a system that wasn't fair. The great thing about the Irish, if you complain as a feminist in Ireland, it's, it, it's, always, it's a pain competition. There's always somebody much worse off. We complain about you know women being badly treated in the 70s, and well, there were the industrial schools compared to that. Yeah, I mean, you're much, and of course it's true, uh, but you're always losing the pain competition, <laughs> or or the fact that these smaller pains matter too is is you know so that there's a withholding of sympathy, or historically there's a great withholding of sympathy for people who are poor and complain. And it just remains for me to say how wonderful it is to have you here and to talk to you about your work. And you can tell from this gathering. High quality, a question, by the way, putting me on my, <laughs> putting me on my metal now, skipping from book to book. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. And I just wanted to say you can tell how loved you are and how much, what importance your work has for everyone here in this room. So. As we say in New Zealand, kia kaha for the next one. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much. Lovely to be in Auckland again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz